Hey, Nora. Hey, Sandy. Uh, you kind of sound down. Am I Am I just reading into you there, or are you actually down? Uh, I am. I mean, my vocal cords are down a couple of uh, notes. I am sick, and I've been sick for a week, and it, it sucks. I mean, everyone that listens to the podcast that's sick understands that it sucks when you're sick, and I'm sick. And then I've also had, like, kids that were sick, and the hospital stuff is, like, getting to me, and... Yeah, I guess uh I guess it's not just my voice that's down. I guess I'm I guess I'm a bit down. I mean, geez, I, I guess we'll get into this a little bit more, but I, I feel really bad for all the parents right now. It's like gosh, um it must be really a bit of a scary time uh for all the parents right now. And also, you know, there's the residual chance that you might get sick as well if your kids are getting sick. So that's that's no good. So for all of you who are dealing with that and are connected to that, uh you know, fuck our government so hard. Yeah, fuck them extremely hard. And I, you know, I'm lucky because we're out of the age where this was very serious. But had this hit when my kids were the age of minus four months to to five years, it would have been absolutely devastating. One of the things I, I'll, I'll mention right off the top, you know, there's no stories of a child has died because they were waiting too long in uh, triage, let's say. Although I don't doubt that that's going to happen at some point. But it's not it's not that it's like the trauma of watching your child suffer and then begging the, a system to help. It, it, it's really, really rough. And and I know that people just not even being able to get Tylenol or Advil for kids is, is, is a stress on its own. Um, and having experienced like the biggest level of stress, like I know that a minor stress, like not being able to get Tylenol is still really meaningful, it still really bothers you. So, yeah, solidarity to everyone out there who's sick, solidarity to everyone out there who's afraid of going to the hospital, uh, who's watching a kid whose breathing is too fast, and we will get into it on this show, but it's it's fucking bad. It's fucking dire out there. Yeah, things are really not good. Um, but before we get into some of that stuff, why don't we why don't we do some being grateful? Well, before we are grateful, let's remind the people. Oh, wow. We have... Uh, we have some joy that will be coming, which is Vancouver, a live show. Oh my God! Tuesday, November twenty <laughs> ninth. I totally 29th. forgot. Yes, and um, and so originally we had one ticket block available, folks. It sold out in less than a week. Oh my God! So <laughs> yeah, so I talked to the venue. We're opening opening up space. We got more space. And, um, and this is really good news for Sandy and I, because, uh, we took a a financial bath on the Montreal show. We didn't price the tickets based on, um, paying the venue off. We were just like, ah, fuck it. Like a small fee and that's all good. But then we took a bath on it. We've cleared what we have to pay for the venue in Vancouver. Haven't cleared like our hotels or anything like that, but don't worry about it. This is awesome. So we are fucking riding high. There are, there are seats left. There are spaces left. Get your tickets. They are not very expensive. So bring along a friend or two or your parents or your exes, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) and enjoy the live show with us. And I should say as well, do bring your mask. Things are not good. We hope that you're going to wear your mask. We're not going to be, we're not bouncing people. We're not cops. We're not going to be like enforcing it. I have to say that. So people are aware, but we do encourage, of course, everyone to wear their masks. Eventbrite, Sandy and Nora, that's where you get your tickets. 
And they're not sold out anymore because we found more chairs. <laughs> and have we figured out whether we're going to record uh, that? Not? We have to unfortunately figure Is out. Is that an absolute no? No, no, it's not an absolute no. We okay. have to figure out on site. So I'm going to bring the equipment necessary, but it's all up to what is possible with the venue. So we're going to we're going to see fingers, 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 fingers crossed. And so excited to see all of you. Oh, I know it's going to be it's going to be great. And I've, I've heard of like I know a lot of folks are coming and I'm like, oh, my God, like. You know, Sandy and I, because we worked together for so many years, we've got mutual friends and people we haven't, either of us haven't seen in a long time. The Montreal show was special because, like, Sandy, I'm not sure if you knew almost anyone in the crowd. I think I knew one person, two people. <laughs> a, couple, a couple people, right? Yeah. Uh, I, I, knew, I knew more because of, you know, I'm closer to Montreal, whatever. But it's, it's really amazing to be in a crowd where you don't really know that many people. Uh, but Vancouver is going to be a real mix. It's going to be a real mix of old friends and new friends. And so get your tickets. It's going to be a really special evening. And we have some gratitude. So this week, thank you so, so much to everyone that... Uh, shared the episodes, gave us feedback. We saw a lot of folks listening to us in their drive from Lethbridge to Calgary. Ooh. Like we love that. Love, 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 love Big that. Time. And specifically this week, thank you so much to Kylie, Blair, and Ben. We appreciate you. We appreciate everyone. You're all amazing. Uh, let's make a, a depressing episode. <laughs> Okay, well, we we can start with um, something that's not that depressing. It's like bizarre, but not that depressing. Christopher Freeland Ooh, I love that. Watch. Oh, yeah. Why not? Like, there's always something to talk about with Christopher Freeland Watch. What's going on? <laughs> well, you know, she was mostly not in the news uh, this week, but there were a couple of things to say about Christopher Freeland Watch this week. I mean, one is related to the Christopher Freeland Watch last week, which do you recall what that was, Nora? Yeah, she was telling us to stop watching Netflix or some shit. Okay, so she's now apologized. She's apologized for that. Do you, do you want to hear <laughs> the apology? Well, it, like, uh, let me just ask before you read it. Is it anything like her apology for her comments to that guy at that forum at the Brookings Institute where she was like, as a Western woman, I always have to say I'm sorry. Um, is it like that? I mean, it is as useful as an apology. Like it is as effective oh. as a like taking stock <laughs> of what one has done and taking uh, accountability of what one has said. So you're on, you're hot on her tail. It says, she says, okay, fuck. I first, before, I'm going to preface this by saying, I absolutely hate this shit. Okay, now here I go. I want to start by recognizing that I am a very privileged person. And? That's, (laughs) that's how it starts. When did this become the script? Also, I hate this script. Can someone make up a new script? If we're going to be doing these things by script anyway, if people are going to be apologizing by script, like, I want to acknowledge that you're, that you're privileged. Like, I get, like, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago that people were like, you got to acknowledge that you're privileged. Everybody knows that shit now. Like, we, you don't got to acknowledge it. You are living it. I, I mean, what does that do for me, you acknowledging that you're rich? Nothing. Oh, my God. We know that, Christian. Shut the fuck up. Yeah, I mean, line line number two of the apology is, like other elected federal leaders, I am paid a very significant salary. She's the fucking salary. deputy fucking prime minister of Canada. Like- She's just layering it on in case you didn't know. I really recognize that it is not people like me, people who have my really good fortune, who are struggling the most in Canada today. Her really good fortune? 
of having a fucking family that were like full on Nazis that were given the red carpet to come to Canada and just build this new fucking life, like leveraging white supremacy to then get her to New York to become a fucking journalist. I mean, fuck off. I mean, the thing is, you know, as finance minister, she does have some power to like, you know, not only recognize the privilege, but, you know, make it less consequential uh, <laughs> in yeah, this country. She could drop her salary. She, 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 could, she could drop her own salary and give us all a raise. She could absolutely do that. She could, you know, pass a budget that actually uh, puts more into the services that we need so that, uh, you know, disparities in wealth don't impact the ability to live in the way that it does. But, you know, whatever, Disney Plus and I recognize my privilege apologies. So there's that. All right. Yeah. Fuck her. Uh, I hope there's nothing else. Is there anything else? There might be something else. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Okay. Of course. Okay, so as I was like looking up stuff for Christian Freeland Watch, I watched, I, I, I found this press release on the Government of Canada's website from this week that is about Anita Anand. And I'm just going to read it to you because when I read the title of it, I thought that it was an error. <laughs> okay, so I'm just going to read the title and you tell me what comes to mind. Defense Minister Anita Anand and coding for veterans to open the TSX market on Remembrance Day. Well, immediately I think that's weird because on Remembrance Day I thought that we closed things instead of opening them. (laughs) Well, there's that. And also like the stock market that I mean, maybe they were really trying to keep Christian Freeland away from from the people because it feels like that's more of a. Uh, you know, a Christian Freeland thing than a minister of defense thing. Although maybe they're saying the quiet part out loud. Like, I don't know. Um, And then coding for veterans. I don't, I mean, okay. (laughs) I don't know. And then if I were to go on and read this uh, release, which I won't because our listeners don't deserve that. It just gets weirder. It's like, why is this? None of this (laughs) makes any sense. But um, yeah, that was uh, the November 11th, uh, thing to do, I suppose, was to open the stock market um, and raise awareness for uh, coding for veterans, which I mean, look that up yourself. I don't know. I don't understand. Mm, OK, that was that's uh, that sucks. I hate that. And like that's an announcement that you can make literally any day of the year and get good media coverage on it. And um, considering the record on supporting veterans is not super great. I, I hate that. Uh, yeah, it's terrible. <laughs> so it's really shit. So there we go. Um, yeah, that uh, I don't know if that surpassed the not depressing that I said it was. I said it was going to be weird and not depressing, but it may have been depressing too. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. But I mean, it's also kind of funny. And uh, it's over already. So you'll never get those seven minutes back, everybody. I'm sorry. Um, yeah. Sorry. Ooh. Well, and speaking of... Um, missed opportunities. I mean, my God, our episode last week could not have been less relevant by the time it launched on Tuesday. <laughs> Listen, Nora, I don't know about you, but I was sad. I was, I was sad, like, like very, I was expecting to be excited. I was expecting to be inspired. I was expecting to be like, you know, invigorated. And I was sad at the news. So if you're not paying attention to Ontario news, let us update you. Last week, we talked about a potential general strike happening, which would have started 
tomorrow um, of the time that we're recording this. So yesterday of the time that you might be listening to it, if you listen to it when it first comes out, November 14th. Um, because all of the unions, uh, many of the unions in Ontario and beyond were supporting um, the CUPE workers who were negotiating with the government for a new contract. And then the government passed a law saying that they uh, were not permitted to strike and they were going to impose um, a contract. And they did that by using, invoking the notwithstanding clause of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms and, um, and suspending the rights and freedoms that are given to us in the Constitution. So, uh, you know, the, the, there was this threat of a general strike, uh, dis- despite the fact that the workers were not allowed to go on strike because of this law. Uh, QP workers went on strike anyway. And uh, because this was such a major threat to labor organizing and labor bargaining, um, all of these unions were coming together in a way that we hadn't seen um, and saying that, yeah, you know, there could have uh, potentially been a general strike in the province of Ontario on November 14th. And then add to that that the uh, Metrolinks, um, uh, the workers of uh, Go Transit, which is another public transit body in Ontario, uh, were bargaining with Metrolinks, which is a uh, private public partnership in Ontario and had gone on strike, uh, pulling access to buses and trains across the province. I mean, it was it's just like this moment where there was this groundswell of support and the, the education workers were getting tons of support uh, from people on the ground. Parents um, were not being tricked by the government and were, were support, was majorly supportive of the union. And so... On the Monday uh, before our episode came out, so the day after we recorded our episode, uh, the the Ford government held a press conference where they announced that they would rescind the law that they passed, making the strike illegal and the use of the notwithstanding clause um, to impose the contract, uh, that they would... They would rescind that if um, QP uh, stopped striking and got back to the table. And QP uh, agreed to those terms after getting them in writing. And so where we're at now is they're back at the bargaining table. Yeah, yeah. So I guess um, maybe what we should unpack is why you were sad by all of these events. And I, I also thought that, you know, this is an amazing show of support of solidarity and of strength and the first show of strength actually that Doug Ford has faced the literal fucking first one since 2018. And, um, I mean, one that was this level of significance, right? And it's kind of an interesting thing to think through because on one hand, if, if the general strike had gone ahead, the messaging would have had to have shifted very quickly because the message that we're fighting for our, our constitutional right to strike, uh, it kind of evaporated when they took the legislation off the table. Now, you can make the argument that they would have done it. They were going to do that, and we need to make sure that they understand that they can never do that. But that's a little bit too theoretical, I think, for average people. I wonder, though, if they still had set the 14th for a day of general strike, considering what is going on in the province and across Canada right now related to the health system, that it actually still would have been an incredible 
opportunity to stare down Doug Ford and actually come up with different demands. And you had all of the leaders of the unions together sorting through what like their membership would have said about certain things. And I don't doubt that on healthcare, there would have been unanimity, unanimity to say, like, we fucking need um, rapidly increased uh, uh, capacity within the system. We need to have resources deployed. We need fucking transparency when it comes to the money that you're pouring into the system that we're not seeing any results and blah, blah, blah. Right. There's a whole bunch of things that they could have done. Um, and it's it's tough because now the pressure is totally off. Now bargaining continues as it as it had been. Uh, the QP educational workers very well might still strike. Um, other uh, educational workers are in bargaining with the government, like the Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario. Um, and so it's just like this really difficult moment where nothing really was turned into anything. Uh, reorienting a general strike towards another issue that's happening in the province could have been one thing. But another thing that, that could have been done uh, could have been a moment to force sector-wide bargaining, which is not something that I've heard anybody talking about. So sector-wide bargaining um, is when the all workers, regardless of the union that they're a member of, they collectively bargain at the same time. And it means that the unions have to work together. They have a set of demands that are common, that ensures commonality from union to union. And this is actually how the public sector and the construction sector in Quebec negotiates. They have these from uh, common front bargaining uh, moments, which actually are huge shows of force against the government. They stare down the government and they have the, the, the capacity to shut down the province. So like that is something that could be, I mean, still potential. It's not like it's vanished, but um, from the perspective of like people watching what's going on and waiting for their cues and waiting for information about what they can do and how they can support, this is where things have really fallen apart because unless you're a member of the union, uh, you're not necessarily knowing what to do. Like there's nothing any longer to do. We're just waiting or standing by or hoping or praying that somebody's doing something and maybe there'll be a solidarity rally call that I can go to it or something like this. So it's it's definitely disappointing from that perspective. It's also very um uh, not at all surprising like it would be it would have been very surprising had they been able to maintain that momentum towards a general strike even with uh, the government taking that bill off the table, but it definitely does feel like a a missed opportunity. Yeah, I think the other thing that could have been where the pivot could have happened, given that all of the unions were coming together in this way, um, was a discussion on Bill 124, which is um, the bill that uh, limits the amount that uh, public sector workers, uh, the increases that public sector workers can get, uh, which is such a slap in the face after the pandemic, um, when many of these public sector workers, especially nurses, uh, were considered um, essential essential workers. I think that would have been a major um, piece of legislation to target as a part of this strike, because the issue is not just the, the notwithstanding clause. Of course, that was the spark, but it also opened up a discussion about labor and work and the way that this government is uh, so hostile to workers. The other thing that I think would have been uh, really important to organize around at that point, um, which again, could still come, so who knows, um, is, uh, is a discussion about inflation and how we talk about inflation in this country. People are really comfortable to, uh, to blame workers and to blame uh, bargaining and the way that we pay workers for inflation, but are not comfortable. I mean, in terms of the media, we don't see as much 
uh, criticizing governments and government policies in addition to uh, private sector corporations. Those two things, given the crunch that everyone is feeling right now, would have been major discussions for unions to control during something like a general strike, where they would have the ear of the media all the time. And given the groundswell of support, using that support to shepherd it into other uh, progressive um, uh, topics with with intense urgency right now, I think, I mean, gosh, that would have been amazing. And so that's why I was disappointed. That's why I was sad um, about it, because I didn't, if it were me, uh, if it, I was part of the union, uh, I would have been arguing to to stay out, that it's not enough for me that Doug Ford says, I promise uh, not to use the notwithstanding clause. I really do believe that a coalition of workers and uh, and people on the ground with the type of support that they have really could have taken this government out. I really do believe that. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, you know, that not taking the government out leaves us with uh, a government that remains hostile and is just going to try another tactic, knowing that this one is too risky for them. And if they thought it yeah. was too risky for them, then that means it was the right move because they need to feel that heat. Yeah, totally. I'm so glad you mentioned Bill 124 because that really is in the background. Um, That's the piece of shit legislation that is just so harmed public sector workers in the province of Ontario with this, with this, like these levels of inflation. You know, I was at a a meeting of the media council for Unifor. So Unifor, the national union that their, their sector of media workers and among the membership are workers that work at Telefrancais TFO in Ontario, uh, which is a French language public channel. And they, and they are subject to bill 124. So they're trying to compete with private sector uh, media companies hiring camera people and editors and and whatever in French, and they can't offer them any salaries beyond the, the 1% increases that were legislated through this bill. And it's like really a minor, like a really small group of people. So it's a minor issue in the, in the sum of like all of the educational workers and healthcare workers or whatever. Um, but what's really difficult for them is that they know that the Ford government wants to privatize public television. And so like they can't even stick their necks out because they're so small. And the French community in, in Ontario is so small and, you know, ha- tends to have all their eggs in the baskets of the liberals that they're at a lot of risk. And so it's just like, God, like, yeah, something needs to unblock the, the status quo. And then looking outside of Ontario, because, of course, a lot of you folks are listening and you're like, fuck, stop talking about Ontario. Um and fair enough, like Doug Ford was practicing and all of the other premiers were paying very, very close attention. Now, most of the commentary we heard in Ontario was related to like from union watchers. So analysts or professors or whatever, who were saying like, wow, this, this is what it took to unify the labor movement. Like that's pretty amazing. And it has, it's been a fractured labor movement since, you know, uh, for a long time, but especially since the 1990s when Mike Harris was also doing radical shit. I think that, you know, if you're in another province, you should take the lesson. Don't wait for a crisis to fucking do solidarity mm-hmm. with one another that you need to have. An, like, I know we have the provincial federations of labor, but sometimes you have to kind of step outside of those established boundaries so that people can get more creative, that you can bring other groups that might not be around the table uh, into the discussion and say, like, OK, like, how are we actually going to confront Scott Moe or fucking, you know, whatever, uh, what's her name, that fucking freak in fucking Alberta, right? Like Daniel Smith. It's, you cannot wait for the crisis because 
the strength that you need is now. It isn't when things get absolutely the fucking nuclear option. And unfortunately, in too many parts of this country, the nuclear option is always going to be what's what's coming because we've got like completely incompetent and ideologically driven piece of shit leading our provinces. And they will want to do that. They will want to go as far as possible to crush the union, to crush workers, to give workers the worst contracts while they're rewarding all of their fucking friends through corruption and fucking profits. So like, you know, don't wait, (laughs) don't wait. uh, The rest of Canada, Uh, get your stuff together, figure out what that issue is in your province. and, And let's start actually mounting these kinds of common front attacks back at these governments that seem to think that they're completely untouchable. Okay, so for the rest of this episode, uh, we have another depressing thing to talk about. Another thing that makes me sad, (laughs) which is the state of our healthcare system right now. Um, And all of the news that you might be hearing about our our healthcare system being on the brink of collapse, or depending on what you're reading, already like within a, a collapsing state. Mm-hmm. Yes. And you're probably hearing this whole discussion boiled into, hey, Sandy, mask mandate or no? <laughs> I mean, it feels like that's the only question that people are asking at this point, which is, I mean, to be honest, I'm, I'm like, media, can we be a little bit smarter than this? Like, is, it, is that the only thing that we can discuss when it comes to um, healthcare? That's it. A mask mandate and who wants it and, uh, and uh, who doesn't and what it's going to do or whatever. Like, are we not at the point... Um, in a pandemic slash health being at the at the fore of our minds that we can talk about other measures that the government could have should have um, can be implementing at any time to make our healthcare care system respond um, or be ready to respond to these moments can we can we talk about those things at all <laughs> or are masks the only way that we can is the the only health measure that exists at all that we can talk about it's like it's i, I don't know if this is where you were going with it but i it's kind of mind blowing that that's the only thing that people know how to talk about yeah no, that's exactly where I was going with it. I, okay, I think that good. like I knew you yeah, were smart. <laughs> we're on the same we're on the same page. <laughs> um, I think that left wing people who uh, understand the importance of masking have to really think very hard about the reality that the second that the mandates were dropped, the vast majority of people took the masks off. And I, I think that we have to think very hard about that because it's about human nature, it's sociology. It's about peer pressure. It's about um, individualism. It's about perceived risk. It's about access to healthcare services in case that you get sick or how healthy you might be. And it's complex because if we as left wing people want to change behavior and we want to change politics or policy or the world, whatever, we have to know how to talk to the 80% of people that are not wearing their masks right now. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, And I think that this is like this opportunity is one that allows us to really be honest about the the difficulty in convincing people of doing the right thing. At the same time, we also have to be very conscious of not falling into traps that have been set for us. And the, the fact that this whole discussion is mask mandate or not and not like here off the top of my head. What about 
Like, what do parents even know right now about RSV and where are kids getting RSV and is RSV like circulating within daycares? And how do you, you how do you protect daycares if you can't mask the littlest kids? Uh, is it really coming from the parents or where are the where are the large scale factory uh, congregate works workplaces on this? Like, should they have the mask mandate or should schools have the mask mandate or, you know, um, is there any kind of a, a alert system for outbreaks in your neighborhood or outbreaks in your daycare or outbreaks in your school or where's the data or maybe I don't know like we can start with um, a mandate for masks but then also that has to come with paid sick days because if you don't have one then the other's like way less effective or I don't know like fact that 40 fucking 8% of Canadians don't live in a single detached dwelling and you can mask all you want outside the house but you'll still get Omicron in your house if it's like coming through the walls or through your vents like it is such a fucking fake argument to be talking about a mask Mm -hmm. mandate and I'm really also be talking about just to add to that list, like how many beds per hundred thousand people there are in the province that are going to children. How many beds do we actually need when it's coming, when we're living at a time when there are these pandemics and where are we at? Because we knew we were behind before. Um, what does our triage system look like? Should we be triaging kids? Why are we triaging kids at this point? Is this a canary in the coal mine for our um, for our healthcare system? All of these things are about infrastructure, spending, and the priority that the government is either setting or not setting with respect to healthcare in all of the provinces and federally. And none of these things are discussions. <laughs> it's just it's just masks. And as you say, it's a trap. Like, is it true, as we've discussed before on this podcast, that these things are not like uh, individual responsibilities and that if if th- this is uh, taken up by the government, if they are the ones to do the implementation, then that's far more effective than people, you know, uh, as what's happening in some provinces, doctors are now asking people to, to wear masks, which doesn't do much because you're asking for people to make individual decisions and people are going to make the decisions based on what's um, what's required and what's not. Sure. But we also know that the game board that has been set up uh, politically is that masks are meant to be a left-right political issue. And so if we stick to that game board, we're just uh, playing. We're just going to see what played out before. People are going to polarize based on um, it becomes an organizing opportunity uh, for people on the right. And it, it becomes a dumb thing that people on the left are talking about. Uh, to 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 just be honest, and I and I'm not trying to um, to make light of um, how important it is to uh, take these measures to protect one another. That's that's not the point of what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that we should be able to recognize when this is um, a political game that is being set up, and that's what it is. There's so much more. Um, you know, we are we're at a point where we are we should be prepared for these things and there's so much more that we should be talking about we're not being caught unawares this isn't you know february uh, 2020 where it's like you know we're trying to figure out whether or not we're catching covid from surfaces or not you know this is this is something that we understand and so there are so many different sorts of measures that can be taken and for us to only be talking about masks that is a manipulation it's a manipulation, and we should know that. And it should be reported as such, quite frankly. Yes. 
the amount of time that is wasted talking about masks as the culture wars is so fucking depressing because it's the same with vaccines, right? Like, yes, everyone should be as dosed up as they can be. Everyone should be 100%. I am. Sandy is. You're all listening. You probably are. Maybe you're not. You should be. We're not vaccinating ourselves out of this. We're not masking ourselves out of this. Like, it's just not how it works. And even if every single person all the fucking time was wearing masks, we don't fix any of the problems in the healthcare system. We kick things down the road. We, we kick things down the road. Like, this is the other thing, too, is it's like the amount of time that is spent in media and then people arguing online about whether this is like immunity debt or immunity deficit or immunity fucking collapse or immunity photography. I don't know all the fucking terms that people are using, but trying to understand like, well, well, like, is this because we had too many masks? Is this because um, like kids need to get RSV? Is this because blah, blah, blah? It's like, those are details for the fucking epidemiologists to fucking fight over. And uh, things aren't clear, actually. Things are, they're debating. Like, it is not obvious what is happening and why with less RSV circulating right now in Canada, which is a, a, a viral illness that that attacks children, babies the most, um, that th- there's more severe outcomes, even though there's less of the virus circulating than there was last year at this time. That's very interesting. And there's theories for why that is. And one of the theories is, well, there's a lot of people have COVID and COVID, you know, weakens the immune system. So maybe there's a relationship there. But from a public policy perspective right now, that doesn't fucking matter. It doesn't matter. That's that's like let the scientists f- sort that out. And once in a while, we'll get an update and go, oh, that's interesting. But like 80 percent of kids have already had COVID. Like <laughs> they've already had it. <laughs> Like, I know that people want to protect them to not get it again. And like, sure, of course. Like, yeah, people shouldn't get it again. But they've already had it. So short of them never getting a virus, which if you've ever lived with a child, you know, is fucking impossible. Like, we need a plan for what happens when you have a mass pandemic that creates mass disability or mass immune uh, system compromising and a healthcare system that can't keep up with the surge. This is the fucking issue. And and all of these details, all of these debates that experts need to figure out and they're working on it and I'm excited to read those papers and that's their business. Our business needs to be saying Justin fucking Trudeau, like what is the plan? What is the plan? How come these national summits on healthcare that Jean-Yves Duclos just held with the provinces, how come that was a fucking failure? And it's not in this technocratic kind of like, oh, we couldn't convince this, blah, blah, blah. No, you've got levers. You've got the Canada Health Act. You you have the ability to do things here. What is the failure? And then, of course, what is the failure with Doug Ford? What is the failure with Heather Stephenson? What's the failure with fucking, um, I don't even fucking know who the premier of Nova Scotia is right now. I'm sorry, folks. I'm still in Stephen McNeil time, okay? I know it's not him. Um, but it's got to be another McNeil or... Something like that. <laughs> Whoa. But anyway, I, it's, it, is, it is so annoying to see how easy it is to distract us. And this far into the pandemic, they're doing the same thing that they've done. Masks have been an issue from the beginning. Vaccines and vaccinating ourselves out of this has been the issue from the beginning. And from the beginning, it has always been those large settings that the economy relies on where poor people are, where racialized people are, that is the most dangerous spot. That is the most dangerous setting. Always. That's the, that is fucking how pandemics work in capitalism. And we are nowhere in talking about 
fixing fucking anything because we can just mask ourselves out of this. Um, apologies to the people of Nova Scotia for your um, premier being so forgettable, uh, Tim Houston. <laughs> Houston. <laughs> Houston. I totally fucking knew that. <laughs> but you know, you know what's um you know, like do for 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 folks who um want like an illustration of what we're talking about, like I mean, don't even have to do a thought experiment. Just remember um what it was like when when SARS Close your eyes. Well, just remember what it was like when SARS, you know, one of the 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 huge places that's uh, SARS uh, back in the 2000s era was impacting was 2002 my graduating year of high school uh uh-huh was impacting was well no it wasn't 2002 uh three sorry 2003 it was was 2003 100 percent yeah no that's (laughs) that is actually when i graduated Um, (laughs) yeah it was it was uh you know the discussion that was happening about um what we could be doing in canada and how we were not prepared was happening on the news for sure that is also a respiratory disease was it all about masks? Not at all. Not even a little bit. They were talking about uh, pandemic measures and being prepared and how our hospitals were not ready at that time as well. Go back and take a look at the, the news reports. But it wasn't this weird, uh, political, strange setup of us only talking about this one measure that is just one measure that isn't going to solve the problems that have existed with the healthcare system literally for decades. Um, It's very bizarre. It is a very bizarre thing that this is, it's not just bizarre, it's lazy. And I think it's also a symptom. It's a symptom of like where our media is at right now and how um, everything is uh, underfunded and how media is is essentially collapsing. But again, it's just one of those things where the stakes are too high for us not to be having these conversations at a more sophisticated level in society. We have to actually be having these conversations on a level that makes sense. It's like, okay, Nora, you win the masking fight. Everyone has to mask and everyone's happy about it. Let's let's make it even more of a win. Everyone is happy about it. Everyone is content. It is not a political issue anymore. Now everyone's masking. Now what? We still don't have enough beds. <laughs> we still we still don't have enough people um, to to um, take care of our healthcare needs in terms of doctors and nurses and uh, the healthcare workers that we need in this country. We are still fucked. <laughs> like fuck the masks. Like you know, like it's it's a part of the issue, but it is not the issue. The issue is healthcare as a whole. And the more that we refuse to talk about that the more that we let these politicians get away with it. Yeah. So let's try to be uplifting then, I guess, for the final bit of this episode and talk about why we can't scold people into wearing masks as a way to save ourselves. So what actually does need to happen? And this is this is the kind of stuff that like should be on national television and is not. These kinds of deep discussions related to how we change behavior and how we f- change government and confront power. So like all of the messages that we're hearing right now are from doctors. And I'm hearing, I see people like, oh, the doctors say it's this. It's like, oh, the doctors say it's this. And it's like, okay, yeah, doctors, like they're good at doing doctor shit. Like, I mean, not all of them, but that's what they're, they're the ones saying, 
oh my God, it's never been this bad. Oh my God, emergency room's on fire. Oh my God, we have a nightmare, right? The doctors are the ones saying that and they're getting all of the airtime. What we are not hearing are the people who can step back and say, okay, so the doctors are saying this and this is now what we need. We need um, free higher education in all all of the healthcare fucking uh, jobs, every single one. Everything has to be free and students need to be given like access points to the system to start working like as students to learn on the job because we don't have very much time. We need to train people up and we need to get people into these spaces if we've got a skill shortage or if we've got a human resources shortage. And we have to bump up pay for personal care workers and for inelotherapists and for Uh, fucking nurses. And we also need to take aim at the managerial transformation of the healthcare system where you've got highly paid managers just fucking the system. And any single uh, frontline worker will say like, you know, well, their managers, the ones that fucking are making their lives the most hell often. Right. So that's a whole other thing, which is fixable, which we can fix. But we need to hear the voices of people on the front lines probably through their unions, but maybe not explaining like, no, no, we like get, get rid of this whole tier of management or, or having like, you know, workers actually c- controlling decisions like scheduling and blah, blah, blah. Okay. So that's, that's one thing. But then you also have like, okay, the doctors are saying it's totally on fire. What do we do? Well, um, we're not going to appeal to government because that's not going to fucking change anything. We don't just expect Doug Ford to be given a fucking, compelling argument and he's like oh folks i uh gotta be honest with you i hadn't really thought about that like you really fucking changed my mind right this guy's a piece of shit like he's a fucking piece of shit and he's not gonna fucking change his mind so you have to put boots to a neck right that's the only way that you can do these things which then of course gets us back to this whole general strike discussion but for average people who are not necessarily involved in their union or don't have the option of of organizing a general strike because maybe you're not unionized or you don't know how or whatever It's only through popular pressure, popular pressure that scares governments that we're going to fix this. That is the only thing. And so then the question becomes, how do we build popular pressure? How do we build organizing capacity? How do we bring people together? And how do we start scaring the shit out of conservatives and liberals and NDPers? I mean, that is indeed the question. <laughs> That's, I'm, I'm throwing it over oh. to you because you've got to have the answer, oh, Sandy. Okay. That's how this works. I ask the question, then you answer, you ask the question, I answer. Got it. You know. Well, we are on minute, we intellectual are on minute tennis. Like 42, um, so I feel like you're just going to have to wait for the answer until next week. No. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> no. <laughs> yes, of course. That is obviously the solution. And I think, you know, we were seeing a... a um, a version of that coalesce in in Ontario, right? And besides, and outside of Ontario, yeah. because there were unions making really important decisions and to support the the workers in Ontario. Whether that means whether that's allocating a million dollars from their own budgets to from their own coffers to send over to Ontario to make sure that they were um, successful in the strike, or um, offering to send people uh, from Quebec to support the the general strike, like all of that, all of that, um, it was an effort that went way beyond Ontario. That sort of thing that we were seeing in Ontario, you know, it was sparked, it was instigated and sparked. There was a catalyst, right, to it. We can build those solidarities without catalysts. 
But even even if we're thinking right now, like, I mean, we do have these catalysts that are in play that I don't know if they're being used in the way that they can be. And that's both, you know, the inflationary pressures that people are feeling specifically um, uh, when it comes to food, like the most basic of things, <laughs> wages that haven't kept up with inflation and costs um, uh, of basic needs that people um, need to live or even education or whatever it is over decades, decades, you know, like that people are feeling the crunch so intensely right now that that is a potential catalyst. The pandemic is a catalyst. Um, What's happening in the healthcare system right now is a catalyst. All of that, all of these things are catalysts. And then of course, in each province, you know, the whatever is happening with the premiers, because, you know, sorry, but they all kind of suck. <laughs> they have their own catalysts as well. And all of those can be used to generate the type of support that we were seeing uh, in Ontario. You don't have to wait until, um, you know, the notwithstanding clause is being used until rights and freedoms are being literally suspended uh, in the province uh, to to build those types of solidarities and to force our governments to take note um, because I think, I don't know, like it feels like maybe people are waiting for something, uh, are hoping that someone is going to do something about this and are just kind of waiting for that someone to pop up. But uh, you guys, there is no, there. it's just us. <laughs> it's literally just those of us who've been having these these conversations and it's up to us to to take the step. And so for all of you who are waiting, you don't need to wait anymore. And uh, you can just try a thing, just try whatever it is to build the solidarity that needs to be built so that, um, you know, these politicians who are making these decisions, who are deeply impacting our lives are confronted. You have it in you. I promise. One final thing that we absolutely need to mention that we haven't had a chance to mention yet has nothing to do with what we've been talking about. If you are not paying attention to the murder of Hoden Hashi, you need to pay attention to this. Hoden was a young black woman who was murdered in a club in Saskatoon while people cheered on the woman that was beating her to death. The woman who was charged with beating Hoden to death had her charges reduced and has been released on bail. And very few people are talking about this. The racial dynamics, the gender dynamics and all of this. Really important. Pay attention. And uh, Hoden's family has set up a GoFundMe. So uh, please take a look out for that if if you want to support or if you want to find out if there's any actions that you can take to pressure the Crown to change the, the charges that have been laid in this case. And we'll put the GoFundMe in the show notes so that you can access it quickly. 